Last one to the party. A podcast where we check in with someone who's checked out a longtime classic for the very first time. This is a special episode of Last One to the Party. We had the delightful and unexpected surprise of an email from a listener and a longtime friend, John Flynn. John is a longtime performer at the UCB Theater in New York and also Los Angeles. He's an actor, writer, and director, and he also co-hosts his own podcast, Two Old Queens. So please give that a listen as well. John had listened to our Patti Lapone episode that just came out and uh, began taking notes and corrections and addendums. And he sent us an email. And it was such a terrifically well-written email and lengthy that I reached out to him immediately and said, I want you to do a special episode where you can put all of this stuff into the podcast. John agreed to come on and he provided us with some dissenting opinions. His opinions on Raul Esparza, as well as a surprise for his favorite version of Being Alive, as well as some other digressions into just Broadway lore and gossip. It was a real pleasure to have John on this special episode of Last One to the Party. John, just, I don't know if you have the email in front of you, if you want to uh, look sure, to it for notes, it. or if mm-hmm. you just have it committed to memory, <laughs> but uh, what, did, tell me your first impressions when you were listening to the to the Patty LuPone, as well as, you know, if you want to mention, like, how long it took you to get through a 30-minute podcast. Well, <laughs> sure. Well, I saw, I, of course, a fan of the pod, early fan, um, saw what the topic was, was very excited, so I um, immediately, and then I, it once... Jess said um, she played Avita Perone in Avita instead of what is technically she played Ava Perone. Now I know I, I'm being a very persnickety homosexual by pointing that out, but uh, there was a part of me that was like, oh, that that's a correction. I need to to mention that. And then you did something else, but then you did call it the original cast recording of Sunset Boulevard, and I said, well, I have to give her credit for that. And that's when I sort of stopped just listening and I like paused, went back to the beginning, opened an email document to like uh, record all of my thoughts and corrections. Um, to send to you. And uh, so there's a lot of starting and stopping as I sort of went on my own digressions. But it took, uh, I would say, a little over an hour for me to get through your 30-minute podcast to write down all of my responses, reactions, impressions, and corrections. I love the commitment. And you know, I was once <laughs> gently scolded for referring to a Broadway original cast recording as a soundtrack. Yes. And you just gave me the stare. And I was like, you know what? You were 100% right. <laughs> I, I, too, have a fondness for details like that. So what else? Where do you differ? Jess is sort of the resident Patti Lapone expert. So where aficionado, do you two, right. aficionado, yes. Where do you two sort of split off and divide? Well, it's, I oh, wouldn't wait, say it's a I split off I want to interrupt for one second and say, Please. I love Patti Lapone, but I, again, in this house, only in this house am I the aficionado. In the world of musical theater, I am not. And I know that. I own that. But I live with a very straight white dude. So that I just want to say it's a low sure. bar. It's a low bar. John Flynn, please go, go, go. Talk. Well, I wouldn't say I'm actually a top Patti Lapone stan myself. I do enjoy her very much. And I don't, there's nothing about her that I don't like. There was just some of you are like, oh, this was the best. And it was more of like a, oh, she's not my favorite ladies who lunch. She's not my favorite being alive, but I love a lot of stuff that she does. I jokingly call it chiding or uh, correcting you, but it was more of like a, a conversation or a debate about different divas and uh, different performances. We're happy to have dissenting opinions. 
We, yeah. I we loved it. I loved everything right, you said. I was like, yes, more. So tell everybody, go. <laughs> uh, well, what do you want to start with? Start with the, um, well, yes, I was wrong. It, she was Ava Perone. I was like, oh, brother, he's right. And I actually do agree. And I would like you to talk about it. I agree. Like as a young musical theater person trying to sing a new Argentina, like every woman does, you're like, holy crap. Oh, I yeah. can't sing it. Yeah. It's, imp- it's, imp- I don't know how she did it. Like, it's impossible. Like what, what the role of Ava Prone, clearly Andrew Lee Weber does not like women uh, because <laughs> it is impossible. It's impossible. Like it is, it's, I'm sure so many young singers have ruined their voices for good off of this, much like what I think is happening with Alpha, but now in Wicked. It's like, it is so high. It is so thrilling to listen to. And it's so exciting when it's done right. But I don't think the human voice is really designed or built to do that eight times no. a week. And also like with the Vita, it was not, uh, it's usually cast with an alternate who does two performances a week because it is so vocally taxing, but it's just like so high. It's such a high place in the voice. It's so powerful. And, it, and you really can't cheat it or it feels sort of so disappointing. Yes. But yeah, I think so like Evita was like her first big splash and it wasn't the first thing she did. She did do a few other musicals and, and stuff in theater, but like Evita was the one that really like put her on in the stratosphere as it were, really made her like a capital D diva. And so like a new Argentina, especially like there's a part where she's like, there's a part, yeah. like it's just so high and it's so exciting. Madonna took it down, uh, which you would think actually for a movie, it wouldn't, cause you only really have to do it once. But I also think the thing about Patty LaPone, which you didn't mention, is that she is somewhat notorious for being very sort of lazy with her diction. And she sort of has a lot of marbles in her mouth a lot of times. Now, in her defense, a lot of it is at times where it's like hard. Like when you're singing in certain parts of the voice, certain vowel sounds or certain things are harder to make because you want it to be like open. So anything that's pinched can be harder to hit. So a lot of times singers will adjust a little bit. But she can, I think she can get lazy a lot. There's sort of a lot of examples. I think Buenos Aires, the first big song that she has in Evita is a real, a good example of that, where it does combine like those great, exciting, soaring, like open notes that she's just belting her face off. And then she'll be like, like she just like has this weird, like almost like a slur or like she's kind of drunk or she just Mm -hmm. sort of like maybe had a little bit of a stroke in the middle of singing the song, but she's going to keep going because she is Patti Lapone and she was trained at Juilliard. So she's not giving up if she's on stage, but you are, uh, you do have moments of like, what just happened? What did she say? I'm not sure. Oh, I agree. I didn't know what she was singing at all. My friend, Abe Sylvia at the Boston Conservatory, mm. um, he knew the score inside and out. And sure. he would tell me what she was singing because I, li- I agree with you, right? right? Just a little swallow, swallow, swallow. I was like, what is she saying? <laughs> Um, and there's that part in like Sunset Boulevard where she, uh, that song where like they're making over uh, Joe Gillis. She's like, I like flat, a lot of man, and you just, it really feels very grotesque and macabre, but exciting. It is exciting. And she gets the tone. Listen, you might not know what she's saying, but you get what's, where she's going. Exactly. It's, a, it's, it's almost like seeing an opera in a different language where you're like, the good ones, I don't know the specifics, but I get the emotion and I get the character and what's happening. So, John, I want to also, this great email that you sent us, I want to refer to one thing in there that I was especially happy to, to, to see was that you were on Team James when it came to Raul Esparza and his vibrato. I'm not alone. I'm happy that a, a knowledgeable Broadway person, that it's not just me being isolated in my own jazz world, but somebody who is in it. Is also like, boy, take it down a notch. Yeah, I will say that I've seen Raul Esparza live a couple times. I saw him in Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, I saw him in Taboo. I saw him in this revival of Company. I'm not the biggest Raul Esparza fan. Uh, I don't, I liked him best in 
taboo, I would say. But I didn't think that production of Company was very good, that particular revival. Uh, the director was this guy, John Doyle, who is known for, he has this sort of shtick where it's like, his concept is that the actors also play the instruments. And isn't that interesting? And this brings us, you know, the first thing that he did in New York that was sort of known for this was his production of Sweeney Todd, which Patty Lapone was in and played Mrs. Lovett and notoriously played the tuba. I did not see that production. <laughs> but the next show that he had directed on Broadway was a production of Company, uh, where all the actors played instruments. And I thought Company is all about like relationships and, That's right. and, and all these. And I thought actually having all the actors play the instruments worked against the piece because the actors weren't relating to each other. They were just playing their instruments. And so I thought that that really worked against what is exciting or interesting about that show. I think that part in Rallis Bars' defense is a very difficult part to play. The journey of the character is, it is like a big one emotionally, but it sort of is not a big one dramatically. And that he goes from someone who is unable to be in a relationship to someone who is now able to be in a relationship, but he doesn't actually get into a relationship. It's almost like he goes like, all right, I think I'm ready now. Two hours and that's what we got. His performance <laughs> of it is sort of very self-indulgent and very sort of like, I don't know, it's just so introspective in a way that feels navel-gazy and not interesting to me. And I don't think his vocals, including his very heavy vibrato that is very like Liza Minnelli influenced, helps matter. <laughs> To refer back to the email, you have a version of Being Alive that is neither Raul Esparza's version, nor is it Patti Lapone's version. Who is your favorite version? My favorite is Dean Jones, who's, but that's from the original Broadway cast recording, the OG. Dean Jones, is this the same Dean Jones who did all those Disney movies? Yep. Wow. The very same. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's no him. No idea. So tell me about the Dean Jones version. Well, it's just, well, here's the thing that I think in, again, in Dean Jones's defense or in any sort of like original cast member's defense, when you're originating a role in a musical, I feel like you do have this home team advantage is that in that while the show is being put together and rehearsed, the writers are all sort of tailoring it ultimately to that performer. If Sondheim had wrote a version of the song that Dean Jones couldn't sing, Sondheim would adjust the song to make sure that it works on Dean Jones because it makes everyone look better. Whereas opposed to like someone who comes in and is either a replacement or sings the song later, they're not going to necessarily have that. Uh, Stephen Sondheim wrote this song knowing that Dean Jones was going to sing it in the show. So he, so it was tailored to his voice. Uh, and so like Ta Sondheim is not, any writer is naturally going to be like, oh, this person looks or sounds good or whatever. So I'm going to uh, highlight that. And I just think it's, it suits his voice really well. Also, like he has the benefit of building a character for the whole show. And like in that version, there's also these interjections from other characters, which I think enrich the song itself. So I think there's that. Like when Patti Lapone sings it in concert, it's a different thing. And it's it's her doing it, just doing it as a number, which isn't to say she doesn't bring like acting to it or like character or pathos and all that stuff. But she doesn't have the benefit of a whole show around her supporting that or like building to that moment. So I think she's good in it. I think she's fine. And again, like vocally, she's exceptional and exciting, but it doesn't move me. It doesn't quite get as deep into the subtext of it as I would say Dean Jones's does. We're going to go and do a deep dive here. Let's hear it. In a, in a, in a, in a possible pain point for Jess, uh -oh. which okay. is talking about ladies who lunch, because I know oh, that she was, as, as a young child, <laughs> Obsessed with Elaine Stritch's version of Ladies Who Lunch. Mm -hmm. I've heard it thanks to her. I've heard it many times. I've also, as we talked about in the podcast, seen the Patti Lapone version. You're not as big a fan of the Lapone ladies as we are. Mm -hmm. Tell us why. Well, it's sort of the same thing in that, like, I think, first of all, kudos to Patti Lapone. 
her having to do that song at the Sondheim 80th birthday celebration was an impossible task because first of all, she had to do it in front of Elaine Stritch for whom that song was written and perfectly like tailored for. And so she has to do that, which is impossible. And also like Elaine Stritch does not seem like the sweetest, warmest person. So she's got to do that insane thing. And I think to me, it felt like her, a lot of her choices were more along the lines of like, oh, Elaine Stritch did this line in this iconic way. So I just have to do it differently. Like all I have to do is not do her and then it's a success. And to a certain degree, sure, she made her choices work, but I don't think like ultimately those choices all added up to a version of Ladies that, Who Lunch that I think is definitive. I honestly, I don't know if I've said it this explicitly to Jess. I find Elaine Stritch's version to be a, a little strident for my taste. Well, you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm right. <laughs> well, no, wait. Like, no. When she, no, 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 but let's rise, talk about this. Rise, rise, I'm like, okay. Like, but let's... I love that. That's the whole No, 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 no. But here's my question for you. Which version of Elaine Stritch singing Ladies Who Lunch do you listen to? Do you listen to like the original cast recording or like her and like, or in her like in her club act or like in her one woman show? Which do I listen to? Yes. None of them. None. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I played it, when I played it for him, John, it's the original cast recording. Okay. All right. Because, well, what I was going to suggest or posit might be a reason for that is that I think what happens a lot, and I think the the one who you can see is most guilty of this is someone like Jennifer Holliday. It's like when a singer has to do a song over and over again, like comes to, like one of their yeah. signature songs, they have to do it every time they perform. It's part of the thing that the audience demands. Uh, and they for years and years and years, you keep doing the song, you're doing the song. Certain mannerisms creep in and like certain like affectations get bigger and like you get a little bored or like you people say like, oh, I love how you really like growl on this or really attack this one part. So in order as a performer to keep yourself interested, whether consciously or not, you almost like over exaggerate that and your performance becomes a caricature of itself over time. Again, I think Jennifer uh, Holiday and, and I'm telling you, I'm not going is a very clear example of that. If you see the Tony Award clip, oh, it's brilliant. amazing. It's raw. It's exciting. If you see her having doing it in concert in the last five years, it is all idiosyncrasy. It's all just like weird idiosyncrasies. She's doing like the weird thing that you like, but she's taking it to a 10 and she's not really connected to the song in the way that she was when she originally did it. If I could make a jazz comparison, sure. if you listen to Miles's, Miles Davis's recording of My Funny Valentine from 1955 or 56 and compare that to how he played it in 1966, it's almost an impressionistic version of it by 1960. Different song? Yeah, it's completely different. It's slowed. You know, they say that for jazz musicians, as they, the longer they play, the faster tunes get faster and the slower tunes get slower. So the ballads get just really slow. And that's part of what happens. And so it's, I think it's common with all artists that the more you're required to and expected to do a signature thing until you break from it completely, you're just going to keep stretching it until it, it snaps. Yeah. I think that it's it's really tough to not fall into those traps. I dreamed a dream. Okay. Her version, I not your favorite. I was surprised by this, John Flynn. Patti LuPone, again, I love her. I know it seems like I'm just it's uh, shooting on her. It's not true. I, she is, as an actor, she's so strong. Like, she is such a powerful presence, Like which is why she's great as, like, uh, a Reno Sweeney and Ava Perone, Rose from Gypsy. But I feel like, vulnerability or like weakness i don't think sits on her well so like fontaine who is this woman who is like beaten down and feels broken i don't buy that from patty lapone so much she just seems like stronger than that and so like yes she sounds amazing i do think like again the end of that song she's gotten a little kind of like <gasps> like she does this sort of like weird breathing thing that feels very like affected to me it's like not patty lapone's fault so much as like a lot of performers, especially some, I do think she's a great actress, but I do think there is an element of her that is a personality 
there's a Patti Lapone-ness that always exists, which I think is great. And that's what you want when you're going to see Patti Lapone. But I think like that sort of broken vulnerability that I think Fontaine in that song asks for, I don't think is comes naturally to her. In our legendary email, you reference where you would start for someone like me to expose that person to Patti Lapone. What would your top three, maybe not even original cast recordings, maybe their YouTube videos, where would you start? I think Evita is sort of like the great sort of intro to Patti Lapone. And so both, as we talked about, Buenos Aires um, and then New Argentina, because like the vocals of that. I mean, and even though like her uh, Don't Cry For Me Argentina is great, but it's also like that song is a bit of a snooze. Um, <laughs> don't you agree? It is. It's, I mean, it's sort of like the least exciting thing in the whole score. It is, but it's so funny. It, it is. You are correct. But you. I think I'm tricked into not knowing that because she's so amazing that you actually think it's a good song. Like her talent sure, actually sure. makes it a good song, but if it wasn't her singing it, you would be like, what is, yeah, it's like a plot song. It's an exposition, an exposition song, right? So I think like those as like, as an example to be like, here's the voice. You have to sort of, here's examples of what this voice is possible of. One of her big songs is this sort of this very weird, if you're a musical theater person, you know this song. If you're not a musical theater person or married to a musical theater person, there's really no reason you wouldn't know the song. It's called Meadowlark. It's from this sort of flop musical called Baker's Wife. Do you, are you familiar with Meadowlark, James, at all? I'm sure Jess must have played it for I am not. I was, when you wrote Meadowlark, my head went to Hoagie Carmichael's okay. song, Skylark. <laughs> and then, and then I That's a very realize, different thing. Nope, different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Meadowlark, it's just like this weird song. It's a very popular Musical theater, people like it because it's very belty and it's like a story song. Like You don't need to know anything about The Baker's Wife to sort of get this song. Part of the problem with this song is that it tells the whole story of the character that she's playing in the show. So it's like you sit through this whole long act and then she sings a song that sums up everything. But it's like weird. It's like a very dumb, bizarre story song where it's like a story about a bird who's blind and some guy, some king like comes and says, I'll take care of you. And then the God of the sun comes down and restores her sight. And she is going to leave the king who loves her for this God of the sun but then she doesn't and then she dies because she doesn't follow her true love it's confusing it's got very weird imagery where they're like uh like let's fly away on the silver morning and like we'll dance on the coral beaches and you're like who what is the silver morning what are you talking about why did this bird die the song is so sad and it's also like eight minutes long it's eternal um so those are like iconic, but like she has other greater songs in that score and other fun songs she does in concert. Like I love, um, she does, oh, there's a song I was telling you about, Heaven, it's by Julie Gold that is on that Patti Lapone live album that has like a big, like it's sort of like a soft rocky version. You know, Patti Lapone I think does have a great voice, but she's very theater. So like every time she does, tries to do like contemporary music, there's a little bit of, okay, but she does this one song, this uh, Heaven, which I think is very nice, but it has like a, a big sax uh, accompaniment in it. Do you know what kind of sax is that? Is it like a tenor, an alto? I don't know what kind of sax it could be. I don't know the song, so I'm going to guess it's an alto. Okay. <laughs> Based on nothing. Well, I would, for you, I would say, oh, listen to this song, because that could this saxophone could be your way in. Have you seen Patti Lapone perform live? But she has seen her. She mentions that she saw her, I believe, twice. So she has seen her and she said that her uh, Reno Sweeney was her favorite ever that she's seen. Yeah, she's uh, I didn't see her in Anything Goes, but by all accounts, she was great. The video clips that I've seen, she's incredible. It's like the perfect role for her. It is like an old Ethel Merman role. Like, I think Patti LuPone is the Broadway heir apparent to Ethel Merman. I think she's probably a better actress than Ethel Merman based on what I've heard older gay men tell me about Ethel Merman's performance style. Uh, and I think she has more versatility, but a lot of the roles that Ethel Merman played, I think Patti Lapone, she would do great in them. Rose and Gypsy is one, Reno Sweeney and Anything Goes is another. 
she didn't do it on Broadway. Ironically, Bernadette Peters did, but she would be, I think Patti LuPone would have been a great Annie Oakley and Annie Get Your Gun. So uh, it is not surprising to me that Patti, I, but everyone I know who saw Patti LuPone in anything goes said she was great. I also saw her in Gypsy and thought she was excellent. This brings me to my, one of my last points here. Talk to me about the, I don't know if it's a rivalry, if it's just uh, contrasting styles, because these exist also in the world of jazz between different saxophonists throughout the ages of you've got Coleman Hawkins is different than Lester Young and their contemporaries and the press will sort of pit them against each other. And that goes on and on throughout the decade. So it sounds like you brought something to my attention that I wasn't aware of that Bernadette Peters is kind of the, the opposite or the complement to Patti LuPone. Tell me a little bit more about that. I think the two of them are like sort of the same level of divadom of that. Like they're the same generation. They're both big Broadway leading ladies. I think where Patti LuPone is brassy and sort of has that strength, I think Bernadette Peters has the vulnerability or that seems to come more naturally to her than I think happens with Patti LuPone. They both start in revivals of Gypsy that happen, I believe, within five years of each other. I don't think they have ever performed in an actual show together. They've done a ton of concerts together. They're both always, whenever Sondheim's throwing a birthday party, they both show up. The only rivalry I've ever heard of between the two of them, and this is, it is definitely gossip, so I'll say it that up top, was apparently there was some uh, some sort of benefit or concert where, you know, people, it might've been a Sondheim one, where uh, Patti Lapone was like, oh, I'll sing Everything's Coming Up Roses or something like that. And then Bernadette Peter said, oh, well, then I'll sing Rose's Turn. And Patti LuPone was like, you're not singing Rose's Turn when I just played Rose on Broadway and won a Tony for it. And Bernadette Peter says, well, then you're not singing Anything's Coming Up Roses. So basically neither one of them got to sing a song from Gypsy because <laughs> they didn't want the other one to sing it, to sing a different song from Gypsy. So that is the only thing that I've ever heard about the two of them having a rivalry. I think they're both great. I love them both for totally different things. Uh, I think they're... They're both suited for very different roles than the other. And so in that way, I find it hard to compare them. I did see both of them in Gypsy. I do think Patty was, I don't think it's the role that was necessarily like ideal for Bernadette Peters, but I would not like to see Patty Lapone play uh, Dot in Sunny in the Park with George or Drew, a lot of the other roles that Bernadette Peters has done. So I love them both. My last question is, I think it's probably a two-part question. So you also mentioned that there was a revival of Godspell in 2011, which I was completely oblivious to. Tell me a little bit about that, but also tell me how bad is it that I enjoy the movie Godspell? What is it about the movie of Godspell that you like? I honestly believe that much of it is that I saw it when I was about nine and it's very colorful and the sense of humor in it, I doubt dated much beyond five years when it first came out, but it landed with me as a nine-year-old and I really liked all the silliness and then the the melodrama of the Pharisees and those costumes and the smoke and that was, you know, it's very broadly drawn, I think, ultimately is what it is. It's drawn in very broad strokes and as an eight or nine-year-old kid, that, that hooked me in and then when they're carrying him off and they turn the corner and then it's suddenly just the people of New York filling up the streets again, I just couldn't figure out how they did that magic trick. That whole thing was just so impactful. I have not watched it in the last probably 20 years. And, and, and I feel like it's going to be one of those things where if I watch it, I'm going to be just cringing throughout the whole thing. So I'm curious to get, again, somebody who's knowledgeable about a range of Broadway, like how bad is it? Sure. Well, here's what I will say. It's actually not that surprising that you like Godspell. I think Godspell is a very simple musical. It's not a bad musical. It's not a dumb musical, but it's also a very sketch comedy musical. And so the fact that like you like it, 
or probably a lot of people that we know from UCB really like it because it does as a show allow for so much interpretation. Like it's sort of like a very loose sort of like telling of like some stories from the gospel that ends with Jesus getting uh, crucified. But any production of gospel is going to be very different from another one. Like in the reenacting of these different stories, like in parables, like people do a lot of like pop cultural references and change it up. That's how the show is written. That's how it's meant to be. The score is very simple and very like catchy and easy to sort of learn. Like most of those songs, the first time you listen to them, by the time the song is over, you have already learned the song. Like that's how simple the melodies are. And they just repeat a lot. It's very simple. It's very catchy. It's like designed to be that way. The movie, which I've only seen once, as I recall thinking, is very slow paced, but it does have that sort of like carefree, whimsical, like it makes sense that like I saw my sister was in a production of it in high school, my older sister, and I fell in love with it and like loved it. It is that kind of fun show that like young kids really like. So it's not surprising to me that you like it. Also, it it was when the movie came out, it was part of its notoriety. It was the first movie that uh, had any scenes that were shot inside the uh, World Trade Center. Um, so that's a fun little artifact that it's part of. When I was in high school, I don't know if they'd done this before I got there, but we played in the, the first pit band experience I ever had was for how to succeed in business without really trying. And for the longest time, I knew all the lines to the, at least the high school version of that musical, Okay, but ne- had never seen it. I had gone years before I'd ever seen any of it. So when I finally watched the movie, I was like, oh, I get why that's a joke now or things like that. <laughs> The second pit band experience that I had was we did Godspell my senior year. Okay. And they put the band on the stage so that we were part of the actors. And, you know, it being the 80s, we were all wearing our very 80s -hmm. new wave things and kind of injecting that fashion sense to it. And then the other little bit of trivia is that the then brand new drama teacher at my high school, that was his very first year, my hair was getting kind of long and he saw me in he the said, band Don't room cut it. and he, he talked to the jazz band director and he said, who's that guy? I want him to audition for the part of Jesus. And yeah. I went in and I auditioned and I, because I knew the movie so well, I was doing all of the stuff in the movie for the audition. And he was like, you're great. And I was like, I'm fooling you. I'm ripping off the movie. And so I didn't do it. And I played in the pit band instead, but uh, that could have been my first, you know, real stage experience. Wait, did they actually cast you or did you, and you said, no, Yeah. you said, I can't. Yeah. You're, you're kidding me. It was agonizing. He it, cast you as Jesus and you said no, because you had too much integrity. Well, it was that. And also there was a, a high school jazz band festival coming up that it would have conflicted oh with. And I wanted to be sure to be able to play in that. And so it was both of those things where I felt like I was, a. it wasn't that I had so much integrity, honestly, it was probably more mm-hmm. that I felt like I was a fraud and I was going to be discovered. I'm just aping what these people did mm-hmm. in a movie, which is easily found. At that's the- how everyone, yeah, but that's how everyone in high school acts. <laughs> yes, that's fair. That's yeah. what everyone's, uh, yeah. Well, I'm so sorry. Cause yeah, I mean, you look great for the poster. You, uh, your hair is perfect for the Godspell poster. I'm surprised that this was denied your, uh, the world was denied your performance, even though it was a photocopy. Yeah. And they also didn't, I think, fully understand the idea of transposing the songs because I would have had to have sung everything in a falsetto. And I am not, was not then and am not now a trained singer. I can carry a tune. I don't know that I could have carried a tune loudly enough for people in the audience to hear me, frankly, in, in retrospect. But let's say I had, I don't think, putting a 16-year-old kid singing falsetto for the first time in his life is the best choice either. <laughs> Why would you have had to sing falsetto? <laughs> Everything was too high. I couldn't, you know, I first started to sing them in my comfortable range. The musical director of it, the piano player, he was sitting there and he's like, no, it's it's up here. And I was like, 
I can't imagine doing this for a whole show. Like this is going to be, I'm going to be humiliated for the rest of the school year. If I do this. Well, I'm sorry. I, I would have, I would have, I would not have uh, made fun of you had I been at the same high school as you, but thank you for your encouragement belated as it is. (laughs) Okay. Don't cut your hair. You would have been the lone person sitting with me at lunch, reassuring me, patting me on the head. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> well, I think we've covered it. Is Can you think of anything else you want to add pro Patty LuPone? Here's a, a very deep cut um, that I bet Jess doesn't even know about. You can find it on YouTube. Patty LuPone was in a, uh, it was a pilot uh, musical on, for PBS. It was called Love Cycle, a soap operetta. It stars Patti LuPone, Lonnie Price, Priscilla Lopez, Walter Bobby, Ellen Foley, uh, and it's set in a haunted laundromat. It is 30 minutes. It's available on YouTube. Check it out. It's a real deep cut of a young Patti LuPone. Before life goes on, she was in Love Cycle, a soap operetta. (laughs) (laughs) They never broadcast it, but um, yeah. I think we've covered, we've gone as deep as we can go on Patty LaBone. If you want to reach out to John online, you can find him on Twitter at jfly99 and on Instagram at john underscore flynn99. If you want to follow Jessica online on Instagram, you can follow her at jessica.eason.agency. For all of your casting needs in these unusual times, Who knows what shows may get developed? Or maybe already developed and canceled shows are going to come back with new footage added in. Send your submissions to jessica.eason.agency. If you want to follow me online, you can find me on Instagram at james underscore eason underscore music. I've been trying to keep up on a pandemic song of the day. It's literally just the song, no jazz solos to endure, and oftentimes interrupted by kids and mayhem. Delightful. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Last One to the Party Podcast. On Twitter, you can search for Last One to the Party. You can send us an email, like John did, at Last One to the Party Podcast at gmail.com. The show is produced and edited by me, James Eason. The theme song was composed by me, James Eason. Thank you for joining us on this special bonus episode of Last One to the Party. We hope you'll join us again on our regular episode on Wednesday.